Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. One of the big topics that we emphasize on the podcast is how we can understand, relate to, and deal with the various emotional and psychological tendencies and challenges that we might face. And sometimes those tendencies group together clearly enough that doctors can put a name on them. Some of the more well-known being things like ADHD, OCD, borderline, narcissism, and so on. And we've talked about many of these diagnoses in the past, but we've never focused a full episode on diagnosis itself. Receiving a diagnosis can be really emotionally complicated, and it can leave you with a lot of understandable questions. Things like, what does this mean? What do I do now? How do I relate to this? And maybe even, is my life as I know it over? So today we're going to be focusing on what a diagnosis is, what it means, how the diagnostic process works, and how we can better think about and relate to receiving a diagnosis. And to help us do that, I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. And it's also been a while since I've talked with him because he's spent the last month or so living out of a camper van going on rock climbing expeditions. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I... Am a glow, <laughs> and also haunted in a good way by this topic. Mm, yeah. It might seem superficially like simple or glib, and yet it opens a whole portal into a deep consideration of how we can understand ourselves usefully and not be burdened or bounded by that understanding, but in fact liberated and healed by it. Yeah, whenever we start using words like diagnosis, it's easy for things to feel either really technical or scary and unapproachable. And I think that our goal here with this episode is like, yes, we're going to be talking about some of the technical stuff, but I think the goal here is to really give people an entry point into just a clear relationship with this whole territory and kind of just demystify a lot of the material related to that. So for context, we're mostly going to be focusing on mental health diagnoses during this episode rather than physical health-related ones, but there should be some information here that's helpful for both cases. And before we get into it, a few quick reminders. First, if you could take a moment to subscribe to the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. And if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, and for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show. And you'll get bonuses like episode transcripts, detailed show notes, and ad-free versions of every episode. So, Dad, I think that it's useful to start here with what a diagnosis is exactly and the process that psychologists and psychiatrists use to diagnose people. So with the first half of that question, what is a diagnosis? Okay, great. And as the frame here, the point is to use a diagnosis rather than letting it use you. So this is really about empowerment deeply. Fundamentally, a diagnosis is pattern recognition. Looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. Eh, Pretty good likelihood it's a duck. Diagnoses, of course, are also usually probabilistic, especially in the realm of mental health. They're messy and complicated. If you see someone has a broken arm and the bone is sticking out, the Mm -hmm, diagnosis mm -hmm. is pretty straightforward, right? But if you've got somebody who's dealing with a lot of pressures, they were raised in complicated ways, they've got a lot on their plate, a lot on their mind, you throw in other factors like physical health issues or environmental or interpersonal issues, and they're upset a lot or irritated frequently or kind of blue, 
it's complicated to kind of zero in on, well, what actually are the major factors here and what's going on? Which also enables me to make a really important point that, as Freud put it a long time ago, many of our difficulties are, in his phrase, overdetermined. In other words, we can have multiple diagnoses or multiple identified factors in play. All right. So that said, we start out with what? What's the case for this person compared to people roughly of their sort, you know, roughly age, maybe other factors as well? How are they doing? You know, if you have a, a six-year-old who is kind of jumpy and bouncy and, and so forth, you think, you know, kind of typical six-year-old. If you've got a 60-year-old who can't sit still, who's moving all the time and really, really hungry for stimulation and highly destructible, that's not so usual in a population of 60-year-olds. So we start with what? We're just descriptive. Description precedes explanation. We start with what? And then we go to why. Why is this six-year-old really jumpy in their classroom? Is it because they just are in a chaotic classroom? Is it because they've grown up in a chaotic environment? Is it because they have a physical health issue that they're just constantly itchy, you know, and they're, they're crawling in their skin? Or maybe is it that there's some sort of stable temperament that puts them in, say, the upper 5% of distractibility, impulsivity, hyperactivity, and stimulation-seeking for children their age? And then you're starting to zero in more on the why. Why is the what? Okay, Which then leads to the money question, how to help. There's a classic line, diagnosis drives treatment. So as we clarify What's happening, including the internal world of the person? What's it like to be them? For me, there's something really deeply sacred in this process for us, in which we face and sit and be with and respect kind of the mystery of the other person. We don't know. We don't want to quickly snap them into some little box. People hate being boxed. I certainly do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as, as you know, probably, even though I lived out of a box on wheels for the last month, but it was liberating. It was a liberating box anyway. So my point is you don't quite know, but then when you get closer and closer to what's happening and the why is happening, it starts identifying factors that you can yeah. then start to do something with. So I, I hope I didn't blather on too long there. What do you think about all that? I think that that's a, a great summary where we're we're starting with these bundles of tendencies. And I yeah. think that that's a great place to begin the framework. And then critically, where does a person land in the overall distribution in terms of those tendencies? Yeah. And that that how, that how to help gets to the question, what's the purpose of diagnosing someone? And would you mind talking about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Now, the word diagnosis is situated in a medical context broadly, yeah. of pathology, which is a whole can of worms. It's one thing to describe a person as having, let's say, general personality tendencies of a certain sort, you know, where they are in the Myers-Briggs structure, where they are in the Enneagram. Those are not diagnoses. Mm -hmm. Diagnosis is in a frame of pathology. So one, it is a portal into healthcare and reimbursement and money and doctors. You walk into the ER, they are not going to be able to get any billing for you until they have a diagnosis, even if it's a fuzzy, foggy one in psychology called adjustment disorder, which is one of the most common diagnoses used because it's very elastic. But mm. it's in a medical framework. And 
inherently there's a pathologizing, which many people balk at, understandably, completely understandable. A second thing, though, that is useful about it is that, really, if there is some kind of significant ailment here that's causing distress, that is cross-settings and relationships and times. So it's a fairly stable attribute of this person and or dysfunction. So that maybe mm-hmm. they're just fine when <laughs> the fact that they're dumping anger on everybody and profoundly self-absorbed and narcissistic, they're just fine. But actually, it creates significant dysfunction in their mm-hmm. social or mm-hmm. occupational life. And once you identify it, it is actually really helpful to the individual and to the helpers, the clinicians, even family members. When you suddenly realize, oh, let's say, the six-year-old, this first grader, is not a bad kid. They're not trying to misbehave. They're just in the upper 5% of the range of temperament in terms of, let's say, hyperactivity and stimulation seeking. They're hungry for stimulation. They're bright, they're Mm -hmm. creative, they're vital in their body. They're looking for a stim. And in a hunter-gatherer band, they would be a wonderful asset, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In most of the situations humans have lived in until really this the last several decades around the world, their nature would be very adapted to their situation. But Sitting still in a conventional first grade classroom for long periods of time is really hard for that kid. So then you move away from a kind of moralizing pathology into something that's much more sort of objective and physical. That can be really freeing to the person. And then it can help clinicians zero in and family and so forth zero in on, on what could be helpful to this kid. Just to zero in on that, the pathologizing and the moral fault aspects of this for a second. It's really helpful as we go through this to keep in mind that just as you were saying, our social context plays a huge role in defining what constitutes pathological for somebody, right? When we were doing prep for this conversation, you mentioned something kind of interesting to me, which was that various so-called pathologies are actually adaptive in certain circumstances, particularly for survival. If you think about maybe a, a depressed mood cycle, following a physical injury that somebody might have well you could do a little you could slap your your evolutionary psychology hat on for a second and say okay maybe thousands of years ago when we were living in much harsher situations let alone millions of years ago it might be adaptive for somebody to hunker down and conserve their energy after they had been wounded that might actually have increased somebody's survival rates and then yeah and extending that backward into our primate and mammalian ancestors yeah totally uh, Inflammation is depressing. So, and then an even more extreme example is you could get uh, situations where somebody's hearing voices. And now, of course, we would look at that and go, wow, that's pretty, that seems quote unquote pathological to me. But at various other moments in time, maybe this was very valued by certain groups of people, particularly in a more religious or spiritual context. And if we can hold on to that understanding that the cultural context really influences how we define these terms that can help us relax and lighten up a little bit about any moral or overly pathologizing aspects of this. And attached to that, we haven't talked at all yet about where things come from. There are two big possibilities when it comes to the origins of these different things, right? The first, nature. Your biology is just set up a little differently than other people's is. And second, nurture. Your experiences impacted your biology or your psychological system or whatever else. And really importantly, neither of those things is your fault. <laughs> you know, we've talked plenty in the past 
about how our environments can impact our behavior, which then impacts our environments as a kind of loop. But most big personality diagnoses find their roots in situations where a person doesn't have a lot of agency. We're either talking about like their biological underpinning or we're talking about early childhood experiences, abuse situations. And by and large, these are all situations where somebody did not have a lot of influence over the outcome. So even if you receive some kind of diagnosis that seems big and scary, more often than not, it has nothing to do with personal fault on any level. That's so well said, Forrest. And it prompts me to think about something in addition to it that's related, which is people get to where they are, right? Let's say someone's in their 40s or 50s. They've had some life and life is banged on them. We're designed to learn from our experiences, especially negative experiences, particularly negative experiences in childhood, and especially negative experiences in childhood that involve other people. Mm -hmm. The brain holds on to that learning, Velcro for the bad, you know, in my saying. So here's someone who's in their 40s and 50s. Now, they maybe could have done some things on their own or with professional help to deal with some of these tendencies that creates some distress for them and some dysfunction, let's say, in some of their relationships. And yet, in the real world, access to mental health care that's high quality is really limited in America, certainly, including financially. And also people have circumstances in which they're really busy or they're juggling jobs or they have demanding jobs or they're in a single parent kind of role for all kinds of different reasons. In other words, the capacity of people to ease their diagnoses and reduce their diagnoses is very situated in frameworks of privilege mm -hmm. and financial opportunity. And that's another major impersonal class of factors, in addition to classic nature and nurture, that yeah. really shape where people are in terms of mental health by midlife. It's really important to take into account. I've had the yeah. privilege of being able to gaze at my navel <laughs> <laughs> for 50 Same, long for years, sure. and there was yeah, a lot of a lot lint of there. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a lot about privilege, and a lot of people haven't had that kind of privilege. Yeah, no, I think that's a huge point. So in the framework of a clinical setting with a psychologist or a psychiatrist, how is diagnosis done? The reason I'm pausing, there's so much about doing therapy with someone that's not in this hardcore diagnostic frame. Yeah, for And sure. so I just kind of slightly threw me for a loop there. That said, <laughs> I've done a lot of very formal psychological assessments. Yeah. The framework used in psychology that's grounded in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, that's been developed by the American Psychiatric Association, essentially has a bunch of categories, a bunch of patterns, and they fall into two major categories, one being sort of issues, pathologies of different kinds that are fairly localized and specific, even if very, very serious, like schizophrenia or major depressive disorder. And then there's what are called access to diagnoses that are more about sweeping personality disorders, such as borderline personality disorder or narcissistic or paranoid personality disorder. Notice the last word there, starting with a D, disorder, which 
is really interesting. And, and again, it's in the frame of pathology and, and medical issues that then call for insurance reimbursement and other sorts of things. But the whole framing of the kind of issues or mental health issues that bring people to, let's say, psychotherapy as having to do with disorders. You need to find a disorder in your client for them to get reimbursement, let's say, or for you, the provider, to get paid for the therapy they're going through is vastly problematic, and many people have critiqued it. for sure. That said, now we're in the land of psychological psychiatric disorders, perhaps no surprise developed by the people most focused on mental health who are physicians, who tend to operate within that medical model, which has many, many good things about it. But I just kind of wanted to flag some of the issues with it. So the structure that's used in mental health in the DSM is not based on a theory as to the causes of a condition. It's based on just the what. The why, there are these classic lines, you know, that this person's what's are not reasonably due to environmental conditions, poverty, mistreatment by others, stuff that's sort of outside the domain of the mind. Okay, so you're ruling all that out. So the presumption is that it leaves the mind. Okay, now we have the mind. And in that frame, because psychology and even brain science or baby sciences, the APA, American Psychiatric Association, just decided to not get into the whole question of causes, Hmm. the whys. So basically, diagnosis is a box score. It's a symptom checklist, typically. And if you tick six of the 10 boxes, bingo, you've got oppositional defiant disorder, right? Yeah. Or you're obsessive compulsive. You know, you're afflicted by intrusive obsessive thoughts and so forth. So that's the process, essentially. You're just, does this person meet the criteria of the what? And there's some underlying presumption that that what is based on a mental why, but that's Mm, kind mm -hmm. of a little mysterious. Yeah, and to use a simple example here, so it typically follows a structure where there's a list of symptoms and the person has to experience some number of those symptoms over a fairly long period of time. So feeling sad for a couple of days does not qualify somebody for a depressive disorder diagnosis. Let's just use ADHD as an example here because for starters, it's a common diagnosis that many people listening to this may have received. Also, it's kind of top of mind for me these days because Elizabeth, my partner, just received a formal diagnosis of ADHD, and we can talk about that in a little bit. But for something like ADHD, there are these actually two sets of symptoms. There are two categories. There's inattention on the one hand and then hyperactivity and impulsivity on the other. And to be diagnosed with ADHD, a person has to meet at least six of the nine inattention symptoms or six of the nine hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms. And many people meet both, which is referred to as a combined presentation. And then the clinician goes through a process where they specify how severe these symptoms are. And then in addition to that, which you were kind of alluding to a bit earlier, Dad, there are a number of other requirements in order to be diagnosed with a condition of one kind or another. And three of the requirements that come up really frequently in the DSM are as follows. The first is that the symptoms have to be present in multiple settings. And the goal here is to establish that the person's behavior is not just a response to some narrow set of circumstances. Then the second thing that needs to be checked is that these symptoms need to negatively impact the person's quality of life. 
the exact sentence that comes up over and over again in the DSM is there's clear evidence that the symptoms interfere with or reduce the quality of social, academic, or occupational functioning. And that word functioning is really, really interesting because, again, we get to these questions of like, who is defining what good functioning looks like? And that gets very thorny very quickly. And then the third category, which is what you were sort of mentioning before, is the symptoms aren't better explained by something else, ranging from a physical ailment to some other plausible diagnosis that the person could receive. And this gets to something that's known as differential diagnosis, which is a big and kind of uh, kind of complicated topic, but we'll do our best to simplify it for purposes of the podcast episode. But what you'll notice in all of that is that, again, that's all what? There's very, very little why in any of that, and there is certainly no how. And so once you drill down and you really kind of look at what we're talking about here, it's purely descriptive most of the time. Oh, you're totally right. And because I have a particular view around you know, the so-called ADHD spectrum, I yeah. think that there should be no final D. I don't think being mm. highly distractible, stimulation-seeking, and or impulsive is inherently a disorder. It's highly adaptive. Yeah, totally and it's agree. been highly adaptive, yeah. yeah. So for millions mm, of years, totally. Yeah. So I the D on the end of that I, I tend to flag and <laughs> you know remove. <laughs> that said, functionally, it's a problem of fit. And this mm. is a key notion again and again and again that the way a person is in certain settings would be just fine. If someone, for mm, example, mm-hmm. could just paint all day and be left alone and have a quiet life, kind of in a on the edge of the woods in a town with friends and family around, they'd just be fine. They'd be fine. But they've got a corporate job. They're on the go 12 hours at least a day. They have almost no time for themselves. They're wrung out and worn out. And yeah, over time, they get snappish and nasty and start hitting the bottle to self-medicate. So again, does this person have an inherent mental illness, or is it a problem of fit? And that also then very much goes to the why and how to help, because often major ways to help people is to improve their circumstances. The greatest mental health issue in America is poverty. Yeah, for sure. Poverty. By far. By far, yeah. So how do you want to improve mental health in America? Get families and especially children out of poverty. So, you know, that I just, again, I hope I'm ranting from the perspective of being in this field a lot. No, I I couldn't agree with you more strongly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) So, all that said, you're really right for us about this whole notion of differential diagnosis Mm -hmm. and zeroing in, for example, on just the classic one with children, which is the distinction between a kid who's really misbehaving for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they've got just a kind of meanness in them, you know, and there's a payoff, they like it. Or the truth is, they're really bright and they're just bored silly. Huge distinction about what's going on here. Or maybe you have the kind of genetic phenotype, the variation in which your body does not express, your brain does not express a lot of dopamine receptors, which means that you deplete dopamine quickly and therefore need ongoing squirts of dopamine from additional stimulation to feel focused and rewarded. It's not your fault. That's just what you are. So you need to be in settings that give that to you. So again, making these distinctions is really, really useful. Great. So it's really common, as you were saying, Dad, for different kinds of diagnoses 
to have a lot of similar symptoms involved、mm-hmm. in them, and one of the big jobs for a clinician is to determine what condition, what diagnosis. Best expresses the symptoms that a person is experiencing. Essentially,、yeah. best explains them. And to keep on going with what you were just talking about, there, for example, differentiating ADH. We'll leave the D on the end because people are used to it. <laughs> ADHD from oppositional defiant disorder or a learning disorder or some other developmental condition. These can all have a lot of symptoms of like fidgetiness or restlessness or, or high energy that. All kind of look the same. So part of your job is to figure out what's going on underneath that、yeah. might best explain this, and it gets really complicated here. And these fine distinctions are why it's very common for people to get over or under or misdiagnosed by a clinician. And then layered on top of that, you have all of these environmental and cultural effects. And I want、yeah. to take a moment to talk about this because. It's calling it one of my favorite things to talk about is really not the way to put it because it's like horrific on a lot of levels. But this was so insightful when I learned about this. So let's continue using ADHD, right? So men are roughly twice as likely as women to be diagnosed with ADHD, and it is possible that this is because of biological sex differences. Okay, yeah, maybe it's possible. Or it could be that we're overdiagnosing boys and underdiagnosing girls because we acculturate these two sex gender presentations in different kinds of ways. And to again return to my partner Elizabeth here, she was recently diagnosed with ADHD, and going on a prescription medication has been really transformative for her. It's a non-stimulant medication. If you care about that sort of thing, she wasn't diagnosed as a kid, probably in part because she was a. Girl, and she was told to sit still and mind her manners and not be too overbearing in social situations. So she just learned to disassociate super hard and stare off into space with her mind going a million different directions while her body was screaming at her. But she controlled her symptomology, so she wasn't diagnosed. And you have to、mm. ask yourself the question: Would she have been diagnosed if she had been in a male body? Okay. Then the really awful one. White children are diagnosed with ADHD at a considerably higher rate than either Black or Latin children, and that probably, on the surface, sounds like a good thing. Great, we're not overpathologizing minorities. How wonderful! But the problem is that those low rates of ADHD diagnosis are more than compensated for by disproportionately high rates of a diagnosis of conduct disorder,、uh, particularly in Black and Latin youth. And Black adolescent males are significantly more likely, in particular, than their white peers to receive a diagnosis of a conduct disorder, and significantly less to receive a diagnosis of ADHD, which is. Fundamentally racist for starters, or at the very least, it shows a real lack of understanding of the cultural context of different kinds of behaviors. So that was a bit of a monologue, but my point in all of this is just to say that mental health diagnosis is really, really subjective, and it's really influenced by the clinician who's doing the diagnosing. Like you can look at those lists of symptoms and look at one for ADHD again. Often talks excessively. Well. What does that even like say? You know, what's what's excessively? How often is often? How might our priors about a person influence how we judge them? Like these are fuzzy and subjective words. There's no objective standard for what constitutes often talks excessively, right? Maybe I've been talking excessively during this conversation. Like who knows? You know, it's just one of those things where like, what does it mean? Yeah. And sure, there are situations where 100% of clinicians would look at somebody and go like, yes. ADHD or like yes, 
borderline or yes, whatever. But most of the time, that's not the case. And it often is much fuzzier than that. That's so well said, Forrest. Well, thanks, Dad. It's just completely true. Mm. Quick little story about me taking the Rorschach. So mm, mm-hmm. as I was prepping for the psychologist license exam in California, this was a long time ago, like 1990, I decided to take the Rorschach because part of that exam is that you have to be prepared to answer questions about the way a Rorschach is typically scored in the most commonly used scoring system. So I had a colleague of mine that I knew quite well and who had known me for at least five years then as a diligent guy with a young kid, you and your sister soon to follow, who was grinding his way through grad school, getting the job done, doing a dissertation. Now I'd gotten my PhD. I accumulated the additional 1,500 hours. So I was prepping. Okay. So I do the Rorschach. What do you see? What else do you see? Why do you see what you see? Okay, fine. Come back. She goes, Rick, She's going to explain to me what the Rorschach said about me. I'm really interested. She starts out by looking at me kind of funny. Rick, how are you feeling these days? I'm like, fine. Stressed out of my mind. <laughs> I have a million things to do. I desperately want to pass the licensing exam and get out of this apprenticeship. You know, that's how I'm doing. I'm fine. She goes, well, your test had a number of indicators of psychotic process. And I look at her like, what? Mm-hmm. She starts to explain the scoring system. And I'm someone, as you know, who in my 20s, I did a lot of extremely intense, wild and woolly human potential things. And I have a lot of access to my interior. And I'm comfortable sure. yeah. there. So you tell me to look at a picture of you know an inkblot. And of course, I'm a peak performer kind of person. I want to get so a high score. So you really score. want to find everything in that oh, inkblot. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah, totally. Everything. <laughs> You know, and I'm just kind of—I just look at that stuff, and oh, sure, they're like share images. Crazy. I know. None of it was too weird. It really wasn't like my dead grandmother crawling up my leg with a knife in her teeth. You know, like you know, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. (laughs) Image. I'll spare you the details there from Hunter Thompson. But that was it. And I just Mm -hmm. and I and so she said, okay. You know, people have done a lot of inner work, have a fertile imagination. They often do score high in these ways. Okay, great. But I realized, Forrest, that there are a lot Mm -hmm. of people probably who had some psychiatrist or psychologist giving them a Rorschach to decide what their sentencing should be in a criminal system or whether they should be continued to be locked up because their ex or their parents or their father-in-law thought they were getting too uppity or too wild or something and had them institutionalized, and they were just kept there based on those Mm. kind of findings. So, you know, I think it's really important to be very careful with the assessments that we use and very respectful and take a lot of stuff into account Yeah, on the one hand. Totally. On the other hand, to go back to ADHness, it's actually really useful to track the three subtypes of ADHness and their distinctions. And it also goes to your point about girls and boys and their diagnosis. So we have, as you probably know, the predominantly inattentive subtype. This is someone who's not of the three major characteristics, inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. They're not particularly hyperactive and impulsive. Now, maybe it's because their inclinations to be that have been hypersuppressed through female socialization. I don't know. Or they're just that person who spaces out a lot, kind of dreamy, drifty. But just to be able to make that distinction between being predominantly inattentive 
living in your own internal world a lot, very open to stimuli and distractible, both internal stimuli, aha, bubbling up from your body and bubbling up in your mind, as well as external stimuli. That's different from the person who's just jumpy and impulsive, but they're zeroed in when they mm, want to pay attention mm-hmm. to something. Or, and that's different from someone who has all three characteristics. So that's actually useful. Totally. I did yeah. a lot of uh, assessments, as I said, which then sharpened my ability to do therapy because I became more perceptive about distinctions and quicker at pattern recognition in a context of respectfulness and, and a certain modesty about it. Yeah, and to just, because I keep on doing it, to bring Elizabeth into the conversation again, she's a hyper-focuser. And that's one of the reasons that it was tough for her to get diagnosed was because when she's really gripped by something, she can literally, I've seen this girl sit down and bead earrings for nine hours in a row, pretty much. Like when the focus is turned on, she's like, I just can't stop. I just have to keep, and it feels good as it's happening, right? And so that doesn't necessarily look like what we thought ADHD looked like. So all of that said, that was a lot of preamble about what diagnosis is, how people get diagnosed, and the many other considerations that arise along the way here. And you've diagnosed people in the past. It wasn't the center of your practice, but you've done it. Mm -hmm. And receiving a diagnosis can be a very emotionally complex and fraught experience for a person. And There are probably people listening right now who have recently gone through this process. They've received a diagnosis. They're dealing with these emotions. Um, And I would like to get your take a little bit, for starters, on how people often respond to this, like what are the different camps, and then how people can maybe relate to it in a maximally healthy kind of way. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. 
After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. There's some diagnoses that do not feel shaming. Mm. You know, like, it's actually sometimes a relief for someone to hear that they've been swimming upstream with mild chronic depression, which is like having chronic flu. It's a real thing. And yeah. to, to name it and to appreciate how heroic they've been meanwhile. They've kept it together. You know, they're still working. It feels like the insulation has been scraped off their inner wiring but they don't lose it at work. They don't lose it with their kids. They're hanging in there. It's kind of a relief to go, oh, you're right. I'm depressed. It can also be a relief sometimes for someone to realize, well, I am, I am kind of compulsive and obsessive. And underneath it all, there's, there's a certain amount of anxiety that I manage. Now we're getting a little bit at a why here, which is useful. I'm managing my anxiety by checking things repeatedly and engaging in certain kinds of behaviors that my roommates, my partner are looking at me like, you know, that's a little excessive, but okay, I get it. And, and there's some understandable concerns I have about contamination that can be a relief. It can often be really revelatory for people and easing and, and healing to have a kind of retroactive diagnosis. For sure. And and this was totally Elizabeth's experience. Yeah, exactly. it, it just felt like a puzzle piece just fell into the puzzle. And it yep. was like, oh, my God, we have explained so much through this thing. Yeah. It moves to compassion even to that younger totally. kid, that totally. younger me, yeah. you know, yeah. who was really very bright and kind of bouncy, was in a school system with 25, 30 kids in a class, underfunded, again, you situated in society. On the other hand, there are certain categories like narcissism. Or borderline, borderline spectrum past, issues, yeah. yeah. Or for someone to really face up to the fact, which is really interesting, that they've got a substance dependence problem. So these can be kind of embarrassing. There can be a certain resistance. There can be kind of some pushback that says, hey, I'm angry because they're assholes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I see where the solution <laughs> is located. You know, So that can be harder to face. I don't know. What do you think about all that? I think that the answer is often the yes and for people. My yeah. experience here is so much smaller than yours, so I'd love your take on it. But yeah. I think that often people bounce back and forth between these two poles. On the one mm -hmm. hand, feeling like this is 
helpful and guiding and explaining, and on the other hand, feeling shame and guilt and a major injury to their self-worth. Yeah. Because we, again, inside of this medical model, pathology, disorder, all of that different mm -hmm. stuff, there's this underlying story that there's something wrong with a person who has a diagnosis. Yeah. That you are you are flawed and diagnoses stick with people. It's one of the really complicated things actually about diagnosing somebody clinically. It goes on their record and it stays on their record. It can. This is one of the reasons that clinicians are often quite careful about offering a formal diagnosis that has a lot of content attached to it. So this stuff gets very complicated and very yeah. fraught for people. Diagnoses can also feel super pressuring, like you have a responsibility now to do something about this. Mm. And yes, sure, with like a physical health diagnosis, sometimes it means that you need to move pretty quickly into treatment if you want to see yourself improve. And of course, that's always a personal choice, but still, it can feel like there is a obligation to act around the information that you've received. Mm. And that can also feel sort of overwhelming for people. You can get a lot of inner criticism that pops up, I would imagine, if you feel like you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, or if you feel kind of complex about moving forward in the way in which your clinician is telling you to move forward with treatment, I could just imagine that being a really emotionally complicated experience for somebody. I don't know. What do you think, Dad? There's a fuzzy difference between can't and won't. Hmm. And what sure. I mean by that is that I do find that these ways of describing people that have been refined in psychology over the last hundred years are actually informative. They're, they're mm -hmm. distinctions and patterns and tendencies and clusters, and that's useful. But at the end of the day, really, including in my work with people, the diagnosis did not drive the treatment. What I mean by that, mm -hmm. the diagnosis as a label. What is the case? What are the tendencies? What are the dynamics? What are the factors swirling around in the being of the individual? That matters. Mm -hmm. And especially, why are those factors there? What is their relationship mm -hmm. with each other? What, what maintains them? What caused them in the first place? What maintains them and what reinforces them? And what obstructs their change and mm -hmm. learning around their change? And then going into how to help. What, mm -hmm. why, how. That's fantastically useful. Informed mm -hmm. by clarity and clear seeing. So as you know, to a fault, I really am a clear seeing kind of person and mm -hmm. I want to see. I want to know what's going on. And I'm a let's get to it, <laughs> you know, for better or worse kind of person as well. So I'm not so myself balking at the diagnostic formulation when we get to the heart of it, the essence of it, which is the what, why, and how to help. I definitely balk with people who over-pathologize others. I think if you're going to err, I'd err on the side of under-pathologizing. Mm -hmm. But if we kind of remove the dimension of power, which is implicit in the diagnostic process, and we just kind of strip out the element of power and the messenger, and we zero in on what rings true about the message mm -hmm. of yeah. what, why, and how to help, then yeah. I think... To go back to what I said at the very start, we can use the diagnostic process rather than letting ourselves be used by it. Yeah, I think that all that I'm really saying in that is that it's really helpful to feel at choice about something. Yeah. So once we start feeling obligated to do something, I think yeah. things get really fuzzy for people really quickly. And that feeling of being forced to do something or being forced to enter treatment for something, being forced to change your behavior, being forced to go on this medication, 
that feels really bad most of the time. Like, it, it, you know, I, maybe that's my own personality come through. But I, I think that in general for people, that's a real impediment in the treatment process. Like you want to get people on the same side. And I think a major part of that is that feeling of like, okay, maybe your clinician has shown you the door here, but you're the person who's got to walk through it. And feeling mm -hmm. like you are agent in the decision to walk through it, I just think is really useful. That's 100% true. Yeah. And also, if I could add, the truth is sometimes, I mean, the incidence rate of schizophrenia in the population is roughly 1%. And there are manic episodes. People go through manic episodes. People have psychotic breaks when they go off to college, and they are pretty vulnerable afterward. So it actually is useful also to have a maybe part of this diagnostic discussion is about a willingness to recognize when someone is at the tail of the distribution, how can we help it? Yeah. So to simplify, a lot of different emotional responses that somebody might have to receiving a diagnosis or just thinking about this territory, their own traits and tendencies altogether. Are there things that you've found support people or help people support themselves in working through some of the common emotions that come up? Very much so. First, though, of course, there's that distinction between can't and won't. And the question of, is there what are called secondary gains or payoffs for mm -hmm. these tendencies, the what's? And there are people who are invested in their way of being, and especially with regard to certain so-called personality disorders, notably narcissistic personality disorder in particular, the person can experience a lot of payoff for being that way, and they're defended against really appreciating the consequences, and so they're kind of stuck there. But let's suppose that the person actually is suffering and they recognize it so far. What, what am I going to do about this? Okay. And when a person is zeroed in on what to do about it, I think the classics, the classic factors really help. Compassion for yourself, self-compassion, mm -hmm. a sense of being an ally with yourself. Also, so important, respect. Diagnoses are not respectful. If it's a physical diagnosis, you broke your arm, you have diabetes, people don't take it personally. But on the other hand, you know, well, you you went to combat and you came back and you had PTSD and a bunch of your fellow soldiers didn't. Like, what's wrong with you? Are you weak? You know, it's really mm -hmm. easy for people mm -hmm. to feel, as you said, shamed or guilty yeah. about it. So it's very important to bring in respect. You are not your diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a, line from Maya Angelou, to paraphrase it badly, is something like, you know, the traumas of my life have affected me, but they do not define me. Mm -hmm. right? It's very important. You're a whole being with many, many wonderful qualities in which, yeah, there are these factors that are chugging away and you want to wrap your arms around them and do what you can about them. So self-respect, self-worth, and reaching for people who respect you. They don't pathologize you or stigmatize you based on all this. And they, it's like, what? Okay, hey, you know, it takes all types. We all got an issue. Certainly, as you well know, social factors, extremely important. Mm -hmm. I think with regard to medication, I'll just say that my observation is someone who does not prescribe. I'm a psychologist, not an MD psychiatrist is that many people are on meds poorly. Mm, They're mm -hmm. prescribed. I think yeah. I've read somewhere that the average duration of a visit that would lead to a general practitioner writing a script for antidepressants is about six minutes. And if you're going to be medicated, as best you can in our messed up healthcare system, try to find people who are highly experienced with it, typically psychiatrists, and stay in communication with your provider, 
be really real about side effects you don't like. So if you're going to do meds, do meds well. And if you're going to do therapy, do therapy well. You know, get the most out of your therapist. If you don't feel like your therapist is listening or is skillful or helping, say something mm-hmm. and or seek out another therapist. So I think these are factors that are useful. And remember also that many people grow out of their diagnosis in a way. Yeah, For example, totally. hyperactivity mm-hmm. and impulsivity really declines typically as people get older. Yeah, as we talked about in the episode, so does borderline. Yeah, very, very interesting. So you're again, it goes to the point of, hey, use this. Don't let it use you. Be yeah. brave. Look at yourself in the mirror. See what you see. And then based on what you recognize in your own heart of hearts is true, and you decide, you're the boss of deciding this, then, okay, make a plan that's sustainable and stick with it. Yeah, I think that a huge part of this is just honoring that there is an emotional aspect, frankly. Mm. You're a real pragmatist in general. I I think of you as being a very pragmatic person. And it, it can be really tempting for people, particularly when they receive a diagnosis, particularly if you've received a diagnosis and you're a top down, rational, kind of type A sort of person, to move immediately into problem solving. This is something I've had to really work on in my own life and my relationships. Yeah, and sometimes that moving into problem solving, the creating a plan and the figuring out how you're going to dose your meds and the blah, 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 can actually be almost kind of an avoidance mechanism to avoid facing those squishier emotions that can come up. But when we deal with the emotional parts, it actually supports us in being more rational long-term because we're less affected by that unaddressed material that's floating around in the basement of the mind, right? So giving ourselves an opportunity to feel the feelings, process the emotions, all of that associated with this, I think is just a huge part of it. I'm so glad you said that, Forrest. You're 100% right on. That's a phase that's really important to honor, and it's a process that's ongoing too. Yeah, 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 totally. And I think that idea of oscillation is such a huge part of it. I I talked Mm. about this a little bit in my conversation about grief with Mary Frances, Mm. that people oscillate. There are times where you feel really bad about it, and there are times when you're doing the dishes and you feel just fine. And that's really okay. That's really normal. It's it's very common to just wake up one day and to feel really awful about this diagnosis that you recently received and then to wake up the next day and feel kind of okay about everything. Uh, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're dysfunctional. It doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong on the days that feel bad. It's just part of the process. Then another thing that I think kind of really helps people or another emotion that comes up a lot here is anger. Mm. If you're getting diagnosed with something salient at 25, 45, 55, that really has been kind of the case for most of your life, and you just got screwed. You got screwed by the medical system. You got Mm. screwed by your family situation. You got screwed by your school. You know, whatever it was, you just, you were not given an opportunity to receive access to things that would have really benefited you early in life. That can understandably lead to a lot of anger and frustration and regret and disappointment. Yeah. And so there's a real place for honoring that and just going, yeah, I'm pissed about this. Huge. (laughs) Just get really real about it, including if you have the opportunity to work with a therapist, get real with your therapist about your anger here. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that you're like a bad person for feeling angry about it. It just means that you are a person who's having an understandable emotional experience. Yeah, it can stir up. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? You just look back and you go, wow, 
if I had just been recognized and as a kid with this going on, and it could have made such a difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just name in one final thing, and then I want to ask you a little bit about some practical stuff here at the end, Dad. As you kind of said for a second there, but I just want to talk about it a little bit more. There's a ton of stigma that can accompany some of these diagnoses, and one of the best ways around stigma is to feel supported by other people. And receiving a diagnosis can be an extremely isolating experience. You can feel like you're the one who's always the problem, or there's something uniquely wrong with you, or no one could possibly understand what you're going through. Again, all of this really understandable. But these days, there is just so much more awareness around mental health issues than there has ever been in the past. And there are large communities dedicated to supporting people who are going through these these common experiences associated with different bundles of traits. And for example, I've recently been exposed to a lot of the community that makes content related to ADHD through Elizabeth, and they're just fantastic and often hilarious. So that's been a wonderful experience for me to witness from the outside for me personally. But it's actually really cool how these supportive communities can pop up around these extremely difficult experiences that people go through. And there's something in that that I just find like really very touching. So if you have the ability to get access to those different communities, like would strongly, strongly recommend. And it can just be shocking what like a couple of Google searches or a YouTube search or something can pop up in terms of the resources that are really out there for people these days that are freely offered. So all that said, I'd like to ask you just some practical questions here. If somebody's in your office and they're sitting in front of you and you're like, hey, Fred, you've got this bundle of traits. You've got this thing that's going on, really pretty confident about it. Here's some stuff that you should think about. What are you telling them? Like in terms of the very practical, either dealing with the medical system or how to think about it or how to create an action plan or whatever else. Well, let's use the example that I've been thinking about. We haven't named it yet of what's called social anxiety disorder. Great. A lot of people actually are socially anxious to a significant, severe extent that really impairs their functioning. They get very tongue-tied in group situations. It's very hard for them to open up and be vulnerable. Public speaking is a nightmare, let's say, different aspects of social anxiety. And to realize that, oh, okay, this is the case for me. So if if I'm working with someone, I, for one, I really think it's extremely important to keep using plain English or whatever language, right? And come out of the psychiatric mumbo jumbo that can feel very alienating and distanced and privileged and just bring it down to earth. Oh yeah, you're, you really are nervous around other people and you tend to withdraw and that leads to disruptions in your friendships. It's hard to maintain friendships. You'd like to have a partner, but you feel paralyzed about the idea of going on a date, you know, just normalizing, relating it to broader context as well. Plain language, normalizing, emphasizing with respect and sincerity how well the person is doing considering and how brave they must be and how Mm. there's a lot Mm -hmm. of discomfort inside you that you've managed, you've you've been strong, you've been even heroic in your dealing with it and finding respect for that. Also, common humanity, as you said exactly, just right now in America, there are millions of people who feel more or less like you do and are they're grappling with this. There are a lot of other people who are struggling with this themselves. They're with you. 
They're your comrades. So you think about common humanity, camaraderie. Very often I will direct people to peer groups, to peer support, mm -hmm. uh, where they can mm -hmm. find community. And, and a lot of it's online, which is wonderfully accessible. So I think that I tend to slow it down a little bit, just like you said, and I did not demonstrate when I just went into Mr. <laughs> Practicality, to slow it down so they can metabolize this information. Mm. To really realize that just because the person walks out of the office saying, thanks, doc, I'm, I'm cool. You know, you don't know how this is going to land on them over the next days and weeks, especially as they try to talk about it with other people mm. in their life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to really slow it down and honor what it takes for them to accommodate to this new information and really metabolize it. And then the point is how to help. That's yeah. the point. What would help? What would work for you? And this gets into treatment planning. Maybe we should do a whole episode on effective treatment planning because to me, treatment planning is really important. I use the word treatment very loosely. It's important for it to be comprehensive mm -hmm. and for it to have multiple elements in it and to be staged at a pace that a person can manage. So mm -hmm. we're starting to sort out what would help make this better, right? Including how could you rest in more of a mindful acceptance with self-compassion of these qualities without necessarily making them a problem, right? Very often people are caught up in the problem of their tendencies. And one of the first things to do to liberate themselves from their tendencies is to reframe them as not a problem, which is paradoxical, mm -hmm. and yet it really works. So it's the case. There's nothing wrong with you. It's the old metaphor, it's a first start maybe, anxiety is a first start, but you don't have to get complicated about it and start adding second darts in the metaphor to it. And then we kind of zero in on, all right, biopsychosocial, classic mm, model. Mm -hmm. I think biology is really important. What are the underlying physiological factors? Anxiety has a lot of roots in the immune system, for example, and because it's the alarm system in our physiology, so you want to attend to that. And, and then you think, sometimes with meds, sometimes not. I'm very pragmatic about them. For this person who is just not going to do an hour a day of mind training to deal with their chronically anxious temperament, maybe some GABA is really good, you know, or maybe something else. Let's see. So bio. And then psycho, definitely. Think about what resources would be good to grow inside, inner strengths of various kinds. How can they process their old pain? And then social, to be sure. What are environmental factors and social support? So I find that when people really get it, there's kind of like a moment here, I could tell you, Forrest, that's intense, existential, mm -hmm. and sacred. When a person goes, essentially, wow, yeah, snapped into clarity, yeah. I have this quality. There's this part of me, mm. you know? Okay. For me, I always thought of myself as a pretty mellow, calm person. It was really midlife and later when I realized, wow, I actually have a temper. And mm. there are different reasons for it. I can think about just my temperament, my culture, my genetics, who knows? But like, wow. And what I think of as on the zero to 10 scale of intensity is like a two or a three. Mm. Is there other people a yeah. seven or an eight? Like, okay, <laughs> you know, you got to, there's a moment where we just face ourselves mm. on the basis, as you said earlier, of assimilating the emotions around it. But it's like a reckoning. And I just think there's something mm. so profound and important about willing to reckon with your own bundle of tendencies and then yeah. 
after a while, have that reckoning lead to repair and renewal. Well, I think that that's a great note to close this long and detailed <laughs> dense episode on. I'm glad that we uh, we softened and we opened out at the end there because this was a lot of material today. Yeah. And it's material relating to something that is simultaneously very technical and medical yeah, and also really fundamental. And really something that connects to like, what does it mean to be a person in the world? And how do we, frankly, like how do we judge different people and how do we appraise them? And how do we yeah. appraise ourselves? And how do we think about these different groups of tendencies that we might have? And so it gets to like some pretty soulful stuff as you were saying there, dad. Well, it's really sweet. And one thing to mention is simply, what do you do when you start to recognize that your partner or your child or your aging yeah. parent yeah. is walking like a duck, talking like a duck. Yeah, that gets to a whole complicated conversation yeah. for sure. Yeah, And how to use but that information usefully and mm-hmm. respectfully. Yeah, well, maybe teaser for, uh, <laughs> for a future episode that we might do on the podcast. Yeah. But today, I just had a really great time talking with Rick again because I haven't seen my dad for a month, so it was great to do this. <laughs> and uh, we talked about how to think about pathology and receiving a diagnosis. Today we covered a ton of information related to diagnosis, and we particularly focused on what a diagnosis is, how the diagnostic process works, and what we can do to better relate to this process altogether, including how we hold and think about diagnoses in general, and then also how we can better work with and manage the emotions that arise during this process. We began today's episode by talking about what a diagnosis is, and to simplify a little bit, a diagnosis is basically a bundle of tendencies or symptoms that a person is experiencing. And if you're a clinician, the big questions that you're asking are what, why, and how. What's the problem, why is it there, and how can we help? Diagnosis exists within the frame of the medical model which is focused on pathology. It's not focused on character or morality or whether or not you're a good person. So a diagnosis says absolutely nothing about any of those things, and it's really important to keep that in mind as we go through this process. And the crux of this is that somebody is experiencing something that's causing them or the people around them significant suffering, dysfunction, or both. Then we talked for a little while about the purpose of diagnosing someone, and there are two big families of reasons. The first is to get people access to resources. Again, medical model. And being able to cover treatment with insurance is often dependent on a person having received a diagnosis from a clinician. And then, second big group of reasons, you can help people compartmentalize and understand and express their experience more clearly both to themselves and to other people. And there are many people for whom receiving a diagnosis is actually kind of a relief. You see this often with physical health conditions where suddenly having an explanation for symptoms can really actually be remarkably freeing and relieving. But you see it sometimes in mental health too, where all of a sudden it's like you've got this final missing puzzle piece and everything just makes sense in a different kind of way. And then, of course, at the same time, what can also come up is a lot of painful emotions, a lot of shame, a lot of anger, a lot of self-disgust and self-criticism. 
and a feeling like something is really wrong with you, like you're deeply flawed and unfixable in some way. And a lot of that comes up because we have a very pathologizing culture. We have a lot of negative connotations associated with the words that we use to diagnose people at this point. And that's part of why managing the emotions around this, particularly shame, I think, at least in my opinion, is such a huge part of the whole process. And as we talked about all of this, one of the things that we really emphasized over and over again was the role that our social context plays in defining what pathological is or what a non-ordinary experience is. And there are plenty of examples of situations where if the context were just like a little bit different, then something that is thought of as a problem or pathology might not be thought of that way at all. So a lot of this is situation dependent. And the reality is that our systems were not built for the situations that we now find ourselves in. And that's another thing to keep in mind as we're talking about all of this. We then spent the middle chunk of the episode talking about how diagnosis works. And to summarize that kind of quickly, a lot of this is based on what's called the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is now on its fifth edition. And clinicians go through a process where there are these very codified lists of symptoms associated with different kinds of conditions. And somebody needs to meet a certain number of those symptoms within a given period of time in order to qualify for the diagnosis. We used ADHD as an example throughout the conversation. For that one, you need to meet six of nine symptoms in one of these two inventories in order to qualify. And then you also need to check some other boxes. For example, these symptoms need to be present in multiple situations. They need to negatively impact a person's quality of life, and they can't be better explained by something else, which got us into a whole conversation about differential diagnosis, which is the process that a clinician goes through to determine that you're suffering from A and not B in situations where the symptoms for A and B can really look pretty similar a lot of the time. Something that came up toward the end of the conversation that I really want to reemphasize here is that it is very easy to move into problem solving around things, maybe even a little bit too quickly. And sometimes people can use problem solving as essentially an avoidance mechanism to not face the emotions that are bubbling beneath the surface. And receiving a diagnosis is almost always an emotional process of one kind or another, right? It Maybe it makes us feel good. Maybe it makes us feel bad. Maybe it makes us feel deeply flawed and unlovable. You know, whatever the emotions are that are coming up for a person, these emotions are really real. And so managing those emotions that arise is just as important as moving forward with a treatment plan a lot of the time. And also, by better managing those emotions, we can become more effective in all of the next steps that then cascade from receiving that diagnosis. A final thing that I want to toss in here that we actually didn't have time to talk about during the conversation, but it was something that I was thinking about when I was doing prep for this episode. I think that a huge part of this and a resource that can be helpful for people is thinking in terms of from now on. The past is the past. Other people did what they did. You did what you did. All of this is real. It has consequences. I don't want to go like full Rafiki here with the it doesn't matter, it's in the past. These things are, are important and real and they have an impact. But if we're stuck in the past, it's very, very difficult to move forward in life and to do things a little bit differently tomorrow than you did yesterday. 
So maybe you did some things that you weren't proud of, or maybe things would have turned out really differently for you if you had had this piece of information just a little bit earlier. And it's really understandable to feel anger or regret around all of that. And those are real emotions, and, and we don't want to diminish them in any kind of a way. And at the same time, here we are today, and okay, what are we going to do tomorrow? And if we're able to move into that stance in a healthy, integrated, full ways, I think that can really support somebody in figuring out what to do about all of this, again, from now on. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It's a uh, big topic. We did not talk about everything that we could have talked about during this episode, but we did our best to give a good overview of the various issues related to diagnosis and treatment. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. And if, hey, you want to leave us a rating and a positive review, I won't complain. I would love that. Please do. And if you want to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a few dollars a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of content in return. I talk with people over on Patreon all the time. We do these very detailed show notes. You get transcripts. You get ad-free versions of the episodes. If you like the podcast, you'll probably love the Patreon. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.